1: How's everybody doing today? A lot of stuff to talk about. I got a bunch of videos for you today. I also have the big news on the $1.9 trillion COVID relief package, uh, the big news on the, on the minimum wage, uh, Joe Manchin leaving the door open ever so slightly for um, some reform to the filibuster So a lot of stuff to talk about today, guys. Just had some caffeine waiting for that bitch to kick in, wake me up a little bit more. I haven't had anything to eat either, so I might be a mess today, but you would probably prefer a show where I'm a mess. So should be fun. Buckle up, sit back, relax, uh, and let's dive into it. Here we go. So we have some pretty big news coming out of Washington, D.C. The $1.9 trillion COVID relief package has passed. The Senate. Uh, Robert Reich laid out what's in it. Uh, we have $1,400 per person, one-time stimulus checks, $300 a month unemployment. Here's the here's the quiet part that not many people talked about, but it's actually a huge deal: $3,000 per child tax credit, which is huge. That's supposed to, according to um, Some analysis that's supposed to cut child poverty in the U.S. in half. There's also rent assistance, help for small businesses. Um, They basically, the federal government bailed out some states that had to, you know, that didn't have much money to deal with the COVID pandemic. They basically dipped into their rainy day funds, and states were on the brink of bankruptcy, and the federal government is now stepping in and effectively bailing out a lot of these states. Republicans are trying to portray this in partisan terms and say like, oh, it's bailout of the blue states or whatever. I mean, that's utter nonsense. And beyond that, a lot of the money going there is actually to to shore up pensions. So over a million people are having their pensions saved as a result of this package. And, I mean, it would be pennies on the dollar for the pensions if they didn't passed this $1.9 trillion uh, COVID relief package. So listen, without a doubt, there are positive parts of this COVID relief package, and we are much better off having it passed than if it didn't pass. So I just want to leave no doubt in your mind about that, and if you don't believe me, go talk to one of those over a million people who just had their pension saved by this. Um, Go talk to the people. $3,000 per child tax credit is colossal, $1,400 $1,400 stimulus check per person, $300 a month unemployment insurance, help for small businesses, rent assistance, and so on and so forth. So definitely, definitely, definitely positive parts of it. But, of course, you can't have the conversation about this deal without bringing up what's not in it. So first and foremost, the big ticket item that was left out is there is no $2,000 check the Democrats did the weaselly move of campaigning on $2,000 checks, saying it's going to go out, quote, immediately. And then as soon as they got power, it changed to, oh, we meant another $1,400 because $600 already passed. So it's a total of $2,000. Incredibly weaselly. And then, of course, it went from immediately going to go out the door to, you know, whenever we can get around to it. And now is when they got around to it. So that – I mean, even though this bill is good and has a lot of positive things in it, you can't say you're going to do X and then not do X, because people remember that, and people keep track of that. And that pisses people off, rightly so, as it should. But perhaps the even bigger betrayal is, of course, on the $15 minimum wage. So let me show you what happened on that front. Um, They pulled it from the bill, and then Bernie said, I'm effectively going to force the vote on the $15 minimum wage by bringing it back up as an amendment, which puts everybody on the record. So this is really a vote on whether or not to override, overrule the parliamentarian. Eight Democrats voted against the $15 minimum wage, and this is who they are, and this is their net worth. Chris Coons of Delaware, who's Biden's BFF, by the way. He's worth about $10 million. Angus King of Maine, also worth about $10 million. Joe Manchin of West Virginia, worth about $7.5 million. Tom Carpenter of Delaware, worth about $6 million. Gene Shaheen of New Hampshire, worth about $4 million. John Tester of Montana, worth about four, uh, 3 dollars or $4 million. Uh, Senator Maggie Hassan of New Hampshire, worth about $3.5 million, and Kirsten Cinema of Arizona, um, we don't know how much she's worth, but let's just say I'm sure she's not living on minimum wage. Um, and here's Kirsten Cinema's reaction when she was voting on the $15 minimum wage. This, of course, went viral for obvious reasons. She does a cute little, oh, look at that, a little thumbs down copying John McCain when John McCain uh, saved Obamacare at the last minute to snub Trump and, was it Trump? To snub Rep- some Republicans, right? Um... She's copying that famous John McCain moment, doing a little curtsy as she she does the thumbs down. Now, think about what we're witnessing here. This is a Democrat putting her middle finger up to the over a million Americans who would be lifted out of poverty with a $15 minimum wage. That's what she's doing. The $15 minimum wage would help so many people. So many people and she's casually nonchalantly flippantly doing a cutesy little hee hee i'm pro wage slavery hee hee thumbs down go work full time and don't make enough money to survive so um you know correctly everybody is going after her aggressively so listen you know i just wanted to add my two cents in this conversation in my opinion every single one of those Democrats that voted against the $15 minimum wage, they should never be able to live that down. Anytime any of them tweet anything, they should be ratioed to high heaven, and it should say, you voted against the $15 minimum wage, you're pathetic. And, you know, perhaps the grossest part of this conversation and this fiasco is that um, virtually every single one of the eight Democrats that voted against the $15 minimum wage here they had tweeted support for raising the minimum wage. Some of them tweeted support for $15 an hour. But virtually all of them said at one point or another that they're in favor of raising the wage, and then they do this. So in other words, guys, they're, they're just liars. They're just liars. And it's worse than that. They're not, they're not just liars, actually. They're liars and they're corrupt. Because the fact of the matter is, most of the people... Most of these Democrats who are against raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour, it's not, you know, some ideological position that they sat down and combed through the evidence and determined this is the best thing for the country moving forward. No! They take a tremendous amount of money from the same corporations that don't want to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. So really, they're doing the bidding of their donors and the special interests. That's why they're doing what they're doing. So they lied to you and said they supported it when they didn't. Um... And there should be consequences for that. There should absolutely be consequences for that. I think that everybody should call their offices and leave a message and tell them what you think of it. Tell them what you think of them. I think there should be primaries against them. And, um, I mean, I don't know how else to say it other than these guys are our enemy. Because they are wolves in sheep's clothing. It's one thing, like every single Republican voted against the minimum wage increase. Every single one. Okay? Not a single one voted for it. So there is no populist right. Populist right my ass cheeks in Washington, D.C. Are you kidding me? Simply does Even Josh Hawley was against the $15 minimum wage increase. So he also, to an extent, is a wolf in sheep's clothing because he pretends every now and then to be populist and to care about working people. Utter nonsense. He doesn't care at all about working people. But with mo- 99% of the Republicans, they're a wolf in wolf's clothing. With the Democrats, So many of them, the ones who tweeted support for $15 minimum wage and then were against it, they are a wolf in sheep's clothing because they pretend like they're your friend. They pat you on the back and say, oh, yeah, I'm with you. I'm fighting for you. I'm for working people. I'm a Democrat. Do you see the D next to my name? And they're not your ally. They're not. And so they should never live this down. They should absolutely be primaried. They should be defeated. Their voicemail boxes should be full of people who are telling them that they're gigantic pieces of shit. They should be ratioed relentlessly where everybody tells them what they think of what they just did. I mean, they just doomed so many people to live in poverty. They just took a pro-wage slavery vote. I don't consider this issue a debatable issue. I really don't. I really don't. And all the objections, it's just corporate propaganda. This idea of like, oh, it would lead to mass unemployment if we were to raise the minimum wage to $50 an hour. Really? Well, Australia has effectively the equivalent of a $15 an hour minimum wage right in that ballpark. And guess what? If anything, it's a little more. And guess what? There isn't some sort of hellscape unemployment crisis over there. A lot of Scandinavian countries, they don't even have a minimum wage. What they have is almost universal collective bargaining. So the minimum wage is way more than effectively $15 an hour. And there's no unemployment crisis. We have places in the United States of America, whether it's, I don't know if it's states, but certainly like cities that have $15 minimum wage, it didn't lead to a gigantic unemployment crisis. It just didn't lead to that. So it's not true when they say that. And what they're doing is coming out in favor of wage slavery. I want you to work full-time and still not make enough money to survive. That's what they're doing. That is not a defensible position. I repeat, that is not a defensible position. And they deserve whatever the hell they get coming politically. Whatever. And listen, if they lose to Republicans, well, the Republicans aren't for raising the minimum wage either, so they're colossal pieces of shit also. But... You know what? You were the one who came out there and said you were in favor of it, and then you didn't support it. So I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear any of this nonsense. Now, I'm going to even go a step further, though. So these eight Democrats are our enemies. They're our enemies. Now, your ally, they're your enemy. If they're against the big-ticket items that define what it means to be on the left, well, then who are we kidding? They are our enemies. Um, But listen, House progressives, they're pathetically weak. And it's the saddest thing I've ever seen. And it brings me no pleasure to say this, but it's true. So, listen, did they fight a little bit? Yes. But the way they fought was, it, it was the aesthetic, it was the veneer of fighting. So what I mean by that is, they, um, they sent a letter to Kamala Harris and said, you better override that parliamentarian, you better overrule that parliamentarian. This is unacceptable. We need to be in favor of the $15 minimum wage. Ro Khanna. It was Ro Khanna, and he got like 23 House progressives. To fight with him to say, no, we need to put $15 minimum wage in this bill. Where did they mess up? Well, they messed up when Ro Khanna, the same person who who drafted the letter, he went out there and said in an interview, you know, I really want that $15 minimum wage in the 1.9 trillion dollar COVID relief package. But if it's not in there, will I support the package? Yeah, I will. You just gave up all your leverage. You just told him that you're pretend fighting. That's not real fighting. Real, you have to be willing to shoot the hostage. You want to know why Joe Manchin gets everything he wants? Because he's willing to shoot the hostage. He's like, I'm not going to vote for this if you don't do what I want you to do. And so then the conventional wisdom in Washington, D.C. becomes, we have no choice. We've got to do what Manchin wants us to do because he's not going to vote for it. We need his vote. All you needed was, I think it's six, six House progressives to say, I'm not going to support the $1.9 trillion bill if it doesn't have the minimum wage increase in it, Period. Period. 67% of the American people are in favor of a $15 minimum wage. I'm fighting for the people. I'm fighting for working people. I'm trying to raise wages for your average American. So I don't care if you come after me or you're against me or you want to take this fight on against me. I'm on the right side of this. Let's go, son. Knuckle up, bitch. I'll fight you all day long on this. And guess what? If six house progressives or more said, we're not going to vote for that unless you put the $15 minimum wage in there, yes, Democratic leadership would come after them. Yes, mainstream media would come after them. Yes, they'd feel a tremendous amount of pressure. But if they actually stood strong and voted as a block, they would have had to put the $15 minimum wage back in there. Why? Because this $1.9 trillion relief package is a must-pass. And all you need is 51 votes. So you know what happens? If there are more Democrats that say... I'm not going to vote for it unless it has a $15 minimum wage in there. Then there are ones who say, I'm not voting for it. If it is in there, math is math. And Biden and Kamala would be forced to try to get Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema and others on board. Now, listen, nominally, there were 23, 24 House Democrats that signed onto that letter saying, we want the $15 minimum wage in there. Imagine if 23 or 24 of them said, not only do I want it in there, I will not vote for it if it's not in there. Imagine if that happened. They would be forced to put it in, and then you'd be forced to go to work on Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema and these other eight total Democrats who voted against it. And there's a very good chance we'd get it in there. But that would that would require not only House Democrats fighting and voting as a block, twenty three of them voting as a block, saying you better put it in there, we're not gonna vote for it, your bill's not gonna get through. You would need that, and then what that would do is basically force Biden's hand and Kamala's hand, where they would have to try to do anything they can to get Manchin and Cinema and these other Democrats who are against it. They'd they force them to either play nice with them or play hardball with them, either cut a deal with them or destroy them in order to get that $15 minimum wage in there. And listen, in most instances, I'm sure they'd be giving something to them instead of playing hardball with them. But I don't give a fuck. I don't give a fuck. You need some sort of special subsidy or some shit for Delaware to get the two Delaware senators on board for this? I don't care. As long as we get the $15 minimum wage, that's called politics, son. That's called cutting a deal. What does Joe Manchin want? What do you want for West Virginia in order for you to vote for this? You tell me. I'm going to deliver on it. I'll get it in there, son. I will do it. But we need to have a dialogue and you're going to vote for this $15 minimum wage. I'm sorry. There's no way around it. But they didn't do it. The House progressives didn't fight. They didn't They didn't leverage their votes, and then that, of course, in turn, made it so that there was no pressure on Kamala and Biden, and they went the path of least resistance, which is leave the $15 minimum wage out of it. And listen, for those of you who are thinking, well, why can't we revisit this issue? Because they're doing it through reconciliation, which means they need 51 votes. The only way you're going to get that $15 minimum wage passed is if you have 51 votes. You can't do it through regular order with 60 votes. You don't have the votes. You're close to the votes when you need 51. You're close to it. You needed to do it this way, because some people say, oh, my God, it has nothing to do with COVID. Well, that's debatable whether or not it has anything to do with COVID, but the Republicans do basically whatever they want through reconciliation. The Democrats should have done the same thing, but they had to believe in the $15 minimum wage, and frankly, many of them just don't believe in the $15 minimum wage. But this was our chance to get it, and they didn't get it. They're not going to get it through regular order. They're not going to get the 60 votes. They had a chance to get the 51 votes, but they didn't fight for it. So, listen, went back on a giant promise. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You said $2,000 checks immediately. You didn't deliver. You said $15 minimum wage. You didn't deliver. You can't get mad when people don't want to fucking vote for you in that scenario. Again, I don't know, I don't know how else I could explain this to people, but it's not a convincing argument to say my opponent gets a grade of F and I get a grade of C-. minus. That's not a convincing argument. Vote for me. I'm the C- minus asshole. That's not a convincing argument. You can get mad at me all day long. And say, oh, false equivalence, whatever. I, that's not a, an equivalence. I didn't say they both get an F. I said one gets an F and one gets a C minus. But when you say things very clearly, it's, a, it's just a matter of human nature. If somebody says to you, I'm going to do X, and then they don't do X, you go, ah, oh, you're kind of a piece of shit, aren't you? So they could have done it, but they didn't fight for it, which means they didn't really believe in it. So I don't want to hear it from anybody who's trying to play defense for them. I, didn't, I don't want to hear it from anybody. Um, it's pathetic. It's absolutely pathetic. And this should have been $2,000 checks. There should have been $15 minimum wage. It wasn't, and they're going to have to live with those consequences. The $1.9 trillion bill passed, it could have had those things in it, but it didn't have those things in it, which means they didn't want to fight for those things. Okay. Next. So we have some Trump news. This is something that dropped yesterday. Let me show you here. As reported by Playbook DC, Trump has sent cease and desist letters to the RNC, NRCC, and NRSC telling them not to use Trump's name or likeness in money appeals. But the RNC appears to be ignoring it. They sent out an email today asking supporters for money to defend Trump's policies. Okay, this is really, really interesting. So my first thought when I saw this was, wait, so was he lying? Is he actually in favor of doing that third-party effort, the Patriot Party? Because why would you try to stop the Republicans from using your name unless you wanted to distance yourself from the Republicans? That was my first thought. But then it hit me, wait, 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 no, that's wrong. Because he even said very explicitly in his CPAC speech, I'm not going to do a third-party thing. Basically, I own the Republican Party. Effectively, that's what he said. So why is he doing this? Guys, it's very simple. Money. Money. He wants, to, he wants to have, you know, an iron grip on his likeness, as they call it. So he makes money for any, anything that sells that's basically the Trump brand. And when you have the Republican Party selling stuff that's all Trump all day long, he's not necessarily getting a cut of that. And he's still salty, don't get it twisted, at the number of Republicans. There were a bunch of them that were for impeachment and that are basically anti-Trump Republicans. People like Liz Cheney, people like Adam Kinzinger, people like the Lincoln Project folks. Um, So that's why he did it. But funny enough, I mean, this this is right in line with what Trump does and hides. Remember after the election loss, he was sending out these panicked emails that were like, fund our fight, basically. Like, we're going to take this to court. We think the election is fraudulent. We're going to win this thing, but you need to donate now. We need small-dollar donations in order to take this fight on and to win this fight and defeat Biden and basically get Trump a second term. And when you read the fine print of a lot of these emails, the overwhelming majority of the money was going to Trump and his campaign. You had to give over some preposterous, Number in order for any of the money to go towards actually fighting in court um, the election results. So, I mean, this classic Trump, man, classic Trump. He's actually found a way to monetize being president in a way that goes above and beyond even others who were president. You know, there was that other story that broke famously a couple of years back about how he, how he would divert military planes to Trump hotels and properties so that taxpayers can pay his companies, I mean, this is the stuff that he does. There's, of course, the emoluments violations, the corruption violations, where um, Saudi royalty was paying Trump through his D.C. hotel and overpaying on purpose, and then lo and behold, would you look at that, Saudi Arabia got whatever they wanted from the Trump administration in terms of weapons of war. So multi-billion dollar weapons deals, and you find out Trump's making a lot of money from Saudi Arabia because they're giving him hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars through his hotel. What they did is they put U.S. soldiers into Trump's D.C. hotels for some sort of retreat or whatever, overpaid on purpose, and this is a de facto bribe. Clear violation of the Emoluments Clause of the Constitution, which says that the president can't make money from foreign governments because then that's a giant conflict of interest. He's not going to work in the best interest of the American people He's getting paid from foreign governments and doing their bidding. You know, and unfortunately in the U.S., we know far too well, most of the time presidents are representing corporations, and they're not representing the people. Well, in Trump's case, it was representing corporations and representing foreign governments that had given him a tremendous amount of money. The other example, of course, is Jared Kushner took millions of dollars from Israeli banks and basically gave Israel whatever the hell they wanted you again, although to be fair, virtually every administration gives Israel whatever they want So, I mean, that's what's going on now. Ken read this as part of the Republican Civil War and Trump weighing in on that fight. But really, I think the reality is it all comes down to Trump and money. And he doesn't want anybody selling stuff with his likeness on it because he wants a cut of that or he wants the whole damn thing. So we'll see what happens moving forward. But, yeah, it's definitely Trump's party, but it's going to be his way or the highway for him. Okay. Next. So, this has the potential to be gigantic news if uh, it's pounced on. Take a look at this from Ryan Grimm. He says, huge development. Manchin can support reforms of the filibuster, make them talk, etc., while removing the 60-vote threshold for a final vote and still say that he did not end the filibuster. Hard to overstate how big this is. Igor Bobick says, Manchin on the filibuster to meet the press, quote, if you want to make it a little bit more painful, make him stand there and talk. I'm willing to look at any way we can, but I'm not willing to take away the involvement of the minority. Okay, so... There's a lot to say about this. Funny enough, now the, the position that Manchin is espousing now is my exact position and it's been my position all along. Um, so the left has been saying, you gotta get rid of the filibuster. Gotta get rid of it. It's undemocratic. You need 60 votes through regular order to get anything done. We can't get 60 votes. It jams up the whole process. It makes it easy to obstruct absolutely everything. We'll get nothing accomplished. You gotta get rid of the filibuster. Now I do think that's a little bit short-sighted. You want to know why? Because oftentimes Democrats are in the minority. Um, do I like the idea of making it 51 votes for Democrats to get stuff through? Yes. But you know what I don't like? I don't like the idea of 51 votes for Republicans to get stuff through, especially since they're also more aggressive and are willing to force their unpopular agenda more. So I still I want to have the ability, when Democrats are in the minority to block unpopular Republican things. So what's the solution? Well, right now, the way the filibuster works is the minority party just has to say, we're filibustering, and voila, now you need 60 votes in order to get anything through. That's bullshit. What it should be is the way the filibuster used to work. The way the original filibuster worked is like that uh, movie, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. I think that's the name of it, right? I think so. Where in order to filibuster, you had to actually filibuster so you have to stand up there and not stop talking you have to stand up there and filibuster you have to keep talking to effectively block the legislation and not stop talking so in other words the filibuster didn't just require you you declaring i filibuster you have to actually fucking filibuster it was painful so you have to really 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 want to block something in order to pull it off and organize it and be successful I mean, that's the solution. So, in that scenario, it is 51 votes basically to get stuff through. And only in very rare occasions, you know, would would it be, would the filibuster actually be invoked and would the filibuster actually successfully win? So, I agree with Manchin. I think this is the answer. And you know who else has this position? Funny enough, Bernie. I mean, I guess Bernie may have changed his position more recently to, yes, abolish the filibuster. But I I was never in favor of fully abolishing it. I think what you should do is force them to talk, change the rules that they have to talk. They have to actually filibuster when they filibuster instead of just declaring you need 60 votes to get something through. So anyway, and the reason that's my position, again, is because when the Democrats are in the minority, which is going to happen oftentimes, I want to have the ability to force the Republicans to get the 60 votes. I want to have the ability as a last-ditch effort to block something. So, again, that's my position. Manchin is espousing this position. Now, this is a game changer. It's a game changer because that means we can reform the filibuster back to the original filibuster, which would make it so that more of the Democratic agenda is going to pass. Totally in favor of that. Totally in favor of that. Now, here's the part of the conversation that's infuriating. Even given Manchin saying this, even given him saying this, I don't even know if they're going to do this. Because it's like, it's like everything. It's like the $15 minimum wage. They say, oh, they want to, we want to do it, we want to do it, we want to do it, until they don't, until it actually comes time to do it, and then eight Democrats defect, and Biden and Kamala don't fight, and the Progressive Caucus doesn't have the backbone to hold up the legislation and force it in. So it's all talk. It's all fun and games until it's actually time to do it, and then all of a sudden nobody's there, and it doesn't work. So, I mean, that's the, that's the sad part of this conversation is that even with Manchin now on the record supporting a filibuster that makes them talk, I don't even know if we're going to make it happen. Listen, I hope I'm wrong. And I hope that's exactly what happens. I hope Biden and Kamala hear this and the other Democrats hear this and they immediately go to reform the filibuster to take it back to the original filibuster to make them talk. But honestly, I'm skeptical. And I think that it's much more likely the status quo stays exactly as it is. And in which case, you will continue to get basically nothing through. You get, what, three shots at reconciliation per year, so whatever the Democrats get through, it'll be through reconciliation, and basically nothing else will get through, and the Democrats won't go bold through reconciliation. They'll go very, you know, conservative through reconciliation. They'll be very tame, and they won't go for the big parts of their agenda. Um, and one of the other things Manchin said uh, to, I'm not sure if it was Meet the Press or somebody else, might have been Axios, he said, the next big piece of legislation... We need Republican votes, and if no Republicans come along, I'll block the legislation myself. Okay, well, then that's just, that's a white flag. That's, nothing's going to ever get done. Because you're not going to get them. Josh Hawley was against the $15 minimum wage. The, the Republican who most nominally on paper is supposed to be populist was against even the $15 minimum wage. You're not going to get the elected Republicans for anything. Anything. See, the problem, Joe Manchin, is he makes no distinction, because also he's corrupt, too, But he makes no distinction between your average Joe and Jane Republican voter and the corrupt politicians in the swamp of D.C. In in my opinion, the politicians in D.C., the Republican politicians, and most of the Democrats, they're TFG. They're too far gone. They're not representative of the people. You look at some polls, a majority of Republicans support raising the minimum wage. So the real bipartisan thing to do was to do that $15 minimum wage, Joe, and you voted against it. But it's actually bipartisan because the voters supported 67%. It's only this skewed perception you have in D.C., which is the swamp, which is massively corrupt. Oh, we didn't get any Republicans. This must be a a bad piece of legislation and not bipartisan. It's tremendously bipartisan because the voters are the ones that matter, not the corrupt TFG politicians. So it's it's infuriating. But anyway, I hope that they do this filibuster reform because I really think this is the way that it should work. I think you should have a last-ditch effort to block legislation, um, but you need to actually work for it. You've got to fight for it. You have to do the filibuster. You have to talk and not stop talking. And it requires a tremendous amount of organization and will, and, you know, that's the way it should be. That's the way it should be. So let's do this. But, again, I'm skeptical. Even with Manchin saying it, you're going to have Biden and Kamala and the rest of them drag their feet because I don't even think they really want that, um, that burden, that pressure where now you actually have the ability to pass a bold agenda. Because honestly, I don't think they even really want a bold agenda. They were against the $15 minimum wage. They could have fought for it. They could have won on it. They didn't. They chose not to do it, which tells me, yeah, they're not for the things that you and I are for. They are much more milquetoast neoliberal corporatists, and that's their ideology. That's their philosophy. So now they have excuses as to, oh, we can't get it done because the big bad Republicans are in the filibuster. What are we going to do? If you reform the filibuster to make them actually talk they'd be exposed and you would find out very quickly they're not in favor of a lot of the things that they say they're in favor of so that's why i think they're going to drag their feet but however having said that Manchin coming out in favor of the original filibuster instead of this new crazy filibuster i couldn't agree with him more that's bernie's position it makes the most sense and i hope they do it but i'm not going to hold my breath Okay, next. Okay. So, eight Democrats defected on raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. They are my enemy. They are your enemy. They are the enemy of working people. And they are corrupt liars. They're liars because virtually all of them have said they wanted to raise the minimum wage. Um, And they're corrupt because the real reason why they're not in favor of raising the minimum wage likely has a lot to do with the fact that they're swimming in donor money. Corporate donor money. And the corporations, those are the things that are preventing the minimum wage from being increased because they basically run our political system and they are the group that doesn't want to raise the minimum wage to a living wage. Okay, so... Um, the public lashed out at these eight Democrats. By the way, let's not let the Republicans off the hook, because literally every single Republican opposed the $15 minimum wage. Every single one. Every one. Even the so-called populist right. Populist my ass cheeks. Uh, Josh Hawley did not support the $15 minimum wage. Ain't no populist. That's a fake populist. He's a wolf in sheep's clothing just like these eight Democrats. So don't let the Republicans off the hook. All the Republicans in D.C. are TFG. They're too far gone, okay? Don't get it twisted. They're guilty. But these eight Democrats, they're also my enemy, and they're your enemy. This is one of our most basic policy solutions, and they're against it. Well, guess what? They're cornered because the public despises them now, despises them. They were unmasked as enemies of working people. And so how do... How does the elite media respond when these idiots were unmasked? Take a look.
2: it against her own party, and take a look at the video. Here's the move. She gave a thumbs down to increasing the minimum wage. The manner she did it, it lit up the Internet. drew comparisons to John McCain's iconic thumbs down during the health care debate, minus the praise, what did you think? Hey, I think the hubbub over that was frankly ridiculous. I understand there's a lot of progressives who were upset she wasn't supporting the minimum wage hike. Frankly, that had no business in a spending bill. Raising the federal minimum wage is essentially a mandate for the states. It doesn't have to do with federal spending in that regard. And I, I don't understand. It is a common way of voting to do thumbs up and thumbs down. Um, that's what she did. And so I, I think it's a little sexist. The treatment that she got, I don't know if it's because of the outfit she wore, I don't know if it's because she bent her knees a little bit, but she voted, and she voted how she saw fit. And so I think, you know, attack her on the merits of the policy if you want, but not the style.
1: No, but that's what people are doing, but you're insisting that's not what they're doing. The reason why everybody's upset is because of the policy. It's because of the policy. But you order, oh, I think there's sexism involved here. Oh, really? Is that what it is? Is there sexism? That must be why Joe Manchin is getting the exact same amount of heat. Oh, right, that would make no sense. This is mixed feminism. This ain't feminism. This is mixed feminism. This is neoliberal identity politics. See, what they do is they try to shield and deflect and obfuscate from genuine criticism and hide behind identity. Abish, you can't, you can't be, you can't say those things. You can't come after me. Yes, I may have bombed the Middle East and killed massive numbers of civilians, but I'm a woman. So criticism by me of me is, by definition, sexist. Guys, it's the it's the newest trick in the book that's used by corporate Democrats. The newest trick. You don't don't use that tone with me. I'm trans. I don't care if you're gay. I don't care if you're trans. I don't care if you're a woman. I don't care if you're gender fluid. If you're doing the wrong policies, I'm going to call you out. That's what's going to happen. Now, the reason why this got a lot of focus is because of how casual and nonchalant and flippant and cutesy it was. I'll do a little curtsy as I say no.
3: <laughs>
1: it looks like it didn't even. It didn't, she didn't even break a sweat. She didn't even have a moment of, of self-criticism. She just very casually doomed over a million Americans to poverty. That's what happened. She cast a vote that was pro-wage slavery, and she was very acting like, you know, she, it's nothing. She's running an errand on a Tuesday. So that's why people were going after her, because... The consequences of her actions are draconian and devastating, and she doesn't care. And now everybody's hiding behind identity. There's no better way to turn the American people off to identity politics than to have this be identity politics. Can't criticize me, I'm a woman. Can't criticize me, I'm of a different race. Can't criticize me, I'm part of the LGBTQ community. That's effectively what they're saying here. That's what they're saying here. Um, by the way, she also says this had no business being in the bill. It absolutely had business being in the bill. Republicans did 1996 welfare reform through reconciliation. Republicans did the Bush tax cuts through reconciliation. Whenever the parliamentarian told Republicans, I don't think this can be in this bill, they said, thank you for your service, you're fired. Now they, let's bring in somebody that says we can have that be a case. She's also factually wrong when she says, Oh, this had nothing to do with federal spending. Of course it does. There's been a number of studies that look at the effect of increasing the minimum wage. You know what they found? When you increase the minimum wage, corporations, big corporations, have to pay their workers more. When big corporations pay their workers more, a lot of those workers currently rely on the social safety net to make ends meet. But if corporations start paying them more, a lot of them no longer have to rely on the safety net, which means, You shrink the size of the social safety net by raising the minimum wage. So it decreases federal spending. This is a fact. It's billions of dollars, too. This has been studied, and we've covered the studies on this show. So the minimum wage increase absolutely has a lot to do with federal spending. And, in fact, conservatives should be in favor of a minimum wage increase because it makes the government smaller. It shrinks the size of government. It reduces the social safety net. That's exactly what conservatives say they want. They want a small government. Okay, you want to make the government smaller? Force the corporations to pay their workers a living wage, and then the size of the social safety net shrinks. It's a guarantee. It's a guarantee. So you're just wrong. You're just wrong. And guess what? The only way we're going to get this thing passed is through reconciliation because you need 60 votes because of the filibuster to get anything through, and you can't even get a single Republican to vote for the $15 minimum wage. So don't give me this bullshit. They'll keep telling you, oh, you know, wait for a more convenient time. There will never be a more convenient time ever. And that's the same lie that status quo enthusiasts and corporatists have been telling us all these years, for decades and decades and decades. There will never be a better time than right now. Democratic president, Democratic house, Democratic senate, and the president has a 62% approval rating, which means he has tremendous political capital. He can get done whatever he wants to get done if they fight for it. But they didn't fight for it, and they don't want to get this done. That's the fact of the matter. Instead, they'd rather slap it down and then hide behind identity and act like, oh, I'm out lefting you. I'm to the left of you because I'm against the minimum wage, but pro-woman. You're anti-woman and for an increase in the minimum wage. The final point on this, and this one is devastating. You know who would be the biggest beneficiary of an increase in the minimum wage? Women. There are more women than men that make the minimum wage. So they denied a raise, mostly to women, mostly to working class Women trying to make ends meet. They screwed over poor working class women. And then they have the nerve to say that you're sexist for criticizing Kirsten Cinema for doing that. God, this pisses me off. God this pisses me off. I guess the upside of it is that it's so transparent and it's so gross that everybody sees through it. Every single person sees through it. There's no if, ends, or buts about it. It is it's deflection it's obfuscating, it's covering your ass for terrible votes, and it's not going to work. We see through you. Kirsten Cinema and all the eight Democrats who voted against raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour, they should never be able to tweet something without getting ratio to high heaven. They should never be able to not have a full voicemail with people telling them what they really think of them. And They should be reminded every single day of what they just did. Did you know that if the minimum wage kept up with uh, productivity, it'd be about $23 or $24 an hour today? Did you know that? $23 or $24 an hour today, if it just kept up with productivity. Your average worker is being very productive, and they're way, way underpaid. Bet you didn't know that. Bet you didn't know that Australia already effectively has about a $15 minimum wage, and their unemployment rate is about the same as ours. All the arguments against, oh, my God, the unemployment rate is going to skyrocket. It's all bullshit. It's all bullshit. They're protecting their corporate donors, and they're using every dirty trick in the book, and you're seeing it right here. All right, let me do one more, and then we'll take a break. Okay, here we go. It turns out that Donald Trump, absolutely, positively, 100%, without a doubt, did drive viewership for the news media. I mean, it is what it is. This is We have some concrete data on this front now. So Axios uh, just reported on this, and they said that publisher's traffic was down across the board, and many major news sites, saw traffic dip more than 20%, according to data from traffic analytics company SimilarWeb. Um, politics consumption specifically, get this, dropped 28%, 28% with Trump gone. And they give some interesting numbers here. Biden was discussed on cable news for an estimated 1,836 minutes last month, um, And in February of Trump's first year, so the same time frame for Trump's first year, he was covered 4,669 minutes on cable news. That is out of this world. And then, so when Trump gave his CPAC speech, apparently the numbers on that, 7 million people watched that speech, and that rivals the number of people that, tuned into the Golden Globes later that evening, and the hardcore Republican uh, news news channels, like Newsmax, their traffic went up 179%, and One American News Network 157%, and Gateway Pundit, which is the far right, you know, worst corner of the Internet, 70% increase. So when he's gone, attention to the news media plummets, When he's back, it shoots up. So, you know, the conclusion here is basically, and this is sad to say, but it's accurate. The American people kind of got addicted to the daily drama of Trump. That's what happened. People were interested in his every move and how controversial he was and the stuff he would say. And that daily drama, people were watching it sort of like it was a reality show. And that and they got into it. And so now with him gone and going back to an era of being more boring, 28% decrease in politics consumption, which is a a really a gigantic decrease. I mean, that really is amazing. So, I mean, there's a lot of things to to speculate about this. I mean, are we going to hit a point where Trump in 2024 runs and people sort of want that rush again, that like edgy adrenaline rush of being tuned in 24-7, I don't know, because you can make the argument, this is exactly what people wanted, was they wanted to, and I'm not saying this is the right thing to do, in fact, I think it's the wrong thing to do, but they wanted to feel like I could tune out a little bit more, and not have to care so much and follow every single move, because I'm afraid that Trump is going to, you know, randomly blow up Botswana, or whatever the fuck, so, I don't know, man, I don't know, Um, I do know that there are plenty of people who feel that way about it, that... They like the fact I don't have to follow everything so closely. And then there are other people, I'm sure, who want to follow it closely and want that rush and, you know, want to be more engaged. But it, all I can say is it is so uniquely American. All this is so uniquely American to me. You know, the idea that we did turn it into sort of a reality show, and Trump is like the embodiment of Americanism in so many ways. Like, he's just, he's like a living caricature of, capitalism and the greedy CEO and the go-getter businessman and like the self-help guru. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot of, and it's not just him. You could argue that just, and Cornel West says this just like Donald Donald Trump is as American as apple pie. So is Martin Luther King jr. So you got the good side and the bad side, but um, you know, it does strike me as a uniquely American phenomenon and you just got to hope that they don't want that back, that people don't want that back. They don't want the show back. They don't want to follow it so closely every second of the day. Um, The real thing that should happen is you should elect better people and also you should pay as close attention because I've always been of this belief that even though, nominally speaking, the way the national discourse works with a crazy person like Trump in there is more sexy and more appealing to people, that's only at face value, man. When you actually get into the specifics of policy – It is really interesting, and it is really amazing. And, you know, people just need to be given that option. They need to be given the option of intelligent, informative, educational stuff and still maintain um, a level of interest equal to when you're watching the crazy reality show. I mean, that's that's one of the goals of this show and a lot of other outlets and new media, certainly the goal of Crystal Kyle and Friends as well, um, and, I mean, I guess long-term I am optimistic on that point. I don't, know, I don't know if I'd say I'm optimistic long-term on other things, but on that point I am optimistic that you can, you, there is such a thing as a media landscape that is interesting, entertaining, but also deeply informative. Trump was interesting and entertaining and not at all informative, and the media did a horrible job covering him, and it was just, you know, it's like eating junk food 24-7 as opposed to eating a nutritious meal. I want you to eat a delicious, nutritious meal, not, you know, pound Cheetos all day, which is effectively what it was when you're watching the Trump show. So, but it is what it is, man. These numbers are incredible. Giant, giant decrease in people watching the media as a result of Trump being gone. Okay. All right, guys. Let me take a break. When we come back... Um, I got a lot more for you, including the culture wars ramping up again, and Kentucky basically tries to get rid of the First Amendment. I wish I was kidding, but I'm not. Stay right there.
3: back. I am back. I am back. All right, let's
1: continue. Will the culture war ever stop? Unfortunately, I think the answer is no, but it's certainly getting dumber and dumber as time goes by. Um, This was trending on Twitter Pepe Le Pew. Readers are discussing a New York Times opinion piece that argues that, cla- that classic cartoon characters such as Pepe Le Pew and Speedy Gonzalez popularized negative stereotypes and, quote, normalized rape culture. So, um, the first one, going back, what, two weeks now, maybe, was uh, Mr. Potato Head. They renamed... Mr. Potato Head to just Potato Head to be more gender-inclusive. Then it became, oh, the Dr. Seuss thing blew up, where it was, not, it was the only thing they talked about on conservative media. Um, there's about 40 Dr. Seuss books, and six of them were pulled by Dr. Seuss Enterprises because they said, hey, listen, some of this stuff didn't age well. For example... Um, Dr. Seuss talking about Asians with slanted eyes from places nobody can pronounce and portraying black people as like gorillas or monkeys. So they pulled it, and then conservative media sort of went crazy over that. Now, by the way, one of the things I kept pointing out was that it's interesting. They never gave the specifics on conservative media. They would just say, ah, Dr. Seuss is being canceled. Unbelievable. But they never gave specifics. Because I think when people give specifics, like portraying black people as apes, um, everybody's like, oh, I kind of see why they did that. And also, to be clear, this had nothing to do with Democratic politicians. This had nothing to do with some sort of movement to get them to stop selling these books. This all was from Dr. Seuss Enterprises, the company. They made the decision. And they said, you know, we don't think this represents Dr. Seuss's legacy, so we're going to get rid of six of them and... Six of the, like, over 40. I mean, okay, so anyway, I digress. That was the uh, culture war stuff we were just talking about. So now the new one is Pepe Le Pew and Speedy Gonzalez. I don't know what else to say about this other than it is a giant distraction. In fact, Shuan Head, June, was tweeting. She's probably, she's probably kidding or half-kidding or whatever. But she was saying, like, not today, CIA, as if, like, the CIA is trying to cultivate the culture war bullshit to get everybody distracted with that while the status quo in business as usual keeps screwing them. And, I mean, listen, again, she's kidding, but at the same time, it's like, that really is the end result is that people start fighting about the culture war stuff viciously, ferociously, and endlessly – ad infinitum, ad nauseum, and then they do not talk about you know nearly as much the other stuff, like the fact that you're not getting a $2,000 check, like the fact that minimum wage uh, failed. It failed because eight Democrats defected from the party. And so it, it's weird. There does seem to be a little bit of a pattern here that any time there's some big-ticket let down either economically or foreign policy-wise, there's always some culture war bullshit that sort of overtakes it in the media. Isn't it interesting? At the same time, not a single Republican supported a $15 minimum wage. The media was only talking about Dr. Seuss. Conservative media only talked about Dr. Seuss. Now, mind you, that's a policy that in some polls, about half of Republicans support. Um, and 67% of the entire country supports a $15 minimum wage. At the same time, that zero Republicans in Washington, D.C. supported a $15 minimum wage. That was missing from the conversation, and they were only focusing on, uh oh, the woke left has gone crazy, and they're trying to cancel Dr. Sue. At the same time that Biden was bombing Syria and killing 22 people, at the same time he's escalating with Iran, we're talking about Pepe Le Pew and Dr. Seuss. I mean, it does seem to be, whether it's intentional or not, I don't know, and frankly, I don't even care. But it does seem to be the case that this culture war bullshit overtakes the important issues that we should be discussing. You know, and, and the fact of the matter is, there's a lot of agreement And there's a lot of unity on an issue like the $15 minimum wage, on the issue of ending wars, on the issue of the $2,000 checks. There's a lot of unity on that stuff, but we can't actually unify and come together when the country split down culture war lines and we're going to yell at each other about Pepe Le Pew on end every day or yell at each other over Dr. Seuss for hours on end every day. So listen, I don't know how else to say this, but everybody's got to sort of – Remove yourself from the culture war bullshit. That doesn't mean you're not allowed to have an opinion on it. Of course you have an opinion on it. I have an opinion on it. Everybody has an opinion on it. But the fact of the matter is, this has nothing to do with the government. This has nothing to do with public policy. And if you're talking about the non-public policy stuff, as public policy is actively screwing you and doing it right now, you lost the plot. You lost the plot. And you're missing where... You would have the most positive impact if you put your attention there. So, listen, I mean, I hate to let everybody down in the sense that I'm not really giving a take on Pepe Le Pew or Speedy Gonzalez here. Um, But let's focus on the economy. Let's focus on class. Let's focus on income and wealth inequality. Let's focus on climate change. Let's focus on foreign policy. Let's focus on all the serious stuff and leave the children's cartoons and children's books to children. All right, First Amendment under attack. Here we go. This story is so ridiculous, you couldn't make it up if you tried. So this is what's going on right now in Kentucky. A bill moving through Kentucky's Senate, would make it a crime to insult or taunt a police officer during a riot. Supporters say the bill targets people who unlawfully cross the line, but opponents call it a blatant attempt to crush protests and a violation of First Amendment rights. Senate Bill 211 mandates up to three months imprisonment for a person... Three months imprisonment, wow. For a person who accosts, insults, taunts, or challenges a law enforcement officer with offensive or derisive words or makes gestures or other physical contact that would have direct tendency to provoke a violent response from the perspective of a reasonable and prudent person. A person convicted of this misdemeanor charge could face, could also face a $250 fine and be disqualified from public assistance benefits for three months. Incredible. It's incredible because I'm told 24-7 by conservative media that the woke left is anti-free speech and against a free press and they're triggered little snowflakes and they're always in their feeties, their feelings, and they need to get over stuff and stop being authoritarian. This is the definition of authoritarian and anti-free speech. I mean, sorry to keep using 2014 lingo here, but there's no other thing you can call this but triggered snowflakes. Cops want to lock people up for Not my words, their words. Offending them. Offending them. I'll read it again. Um, Three months imprisonment for people who accost, insult, you're not allowed to insult somebody, taunt, you're not allowed to taunt somebody. That's what I call free speech all day long, son. Or challenge a law enforcement officer with offensive or derisive words. Offensive or derisive. I don't care about your feelings. I don't care if you're offended. People can be offended at anything. Not everybody is reasonable. You know, so really what they're saying is it's illegal to make a cop feel uncomfortable. It's illegal. You could even stretch it to it's illegal to disagree with the cop because some cops, if you disagree with them, they'll take it as a personal insult. So you want to give people the ability, you want to give the police the ability to lock people up for disagreeing with them, for insulting them or offending them. Offense is in the eye of the beholder, dog, and what everybody has learned based off being alive and on the internet is that everything is offensive to somebody. Everything. There's not a single thing that's not offensive to everybody. I'm sorry. It's true. It's absolutely true. doesn't matter what you're saying or what you're doing. Somebody out there loves it and somebody out there fucking hates it because that's just the nature of the world that we live in, and so... Just to be clear, this isn't a matter of opinion. If Kentucky passes this, it's a clear violation of the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. I mean, it's unconstitutional through and through. So it would be, it would be a brazen crackdown on free speech, a disgusting crackdown. Um, and I think the feds would have to intervene and say, you literally can't do this. You're not allowed to do this. So, But, I mean, I really am astounded at how far they're willing to go and by the way you know and i know they're very selective with how these things are enforced for example when it's black lives matter protesting oh my god all you hear is blue lives
3: matter yes in blue line we love our police officers
1: but then when it's like the capitol hill insurrection and some police officers get hurt and some die people like these are my freedom loving patriots who are just trying to have their voices heard and tell the government that they got to act responsibly. That's it. So they just, they flip the standard depending on who's doing the protesting. If it's right-wingers, then they're anti-cop. If it's left-wingers, then they're pro-cop. So, incredibly ridiculous, but this is absurd. No. They, the, the police are supposed to enforce law and order, but law and order should be reasonable and it should, they should only be you know, focused on murders, rapes, robberies, crimes that are crimes. You can't keep adding to the list of things that are crimes and making it more and more silly and more and more absurd to the point where it's just if you offend an officer, that's a crime. Because then they're not really doing the job that they're supposed to be doing. They're not really enforcing reasonable laws. They're now enforcing unreasonable laws, and that'll piss everybody off. You know, it's the same thing. Like the drug war, the cops shouldn't be in the business of locking people up who, who they're free individuals putting in their body wherever they want to put in their body, and they're not hurting anybody else. They shouldn't be in the business of locking people up like that. By the same token, you shouldn't be in the business of trying to lock people up because your feelings got hurt. You're doing too much, man. Reel it in. Relax. Take it easy. But never let these idiots tell you they're pro-free speech, man. Never let them tell you they're pro-free speech or pro-First Amendment. The same people on the right who cry all day about the woke left being authoritarian, being anti-free speech, these are the same people who not only support laws like this, but also support laws that say, oh, you can't um, support an Israeli boycott, for example. There's so many laws on the books in in various conservative states where they basically criminalize pro-Palestine activism. So don't ever let these clowns tell you they're pro-free speech. They're insanely selective, and it's all about their partisan agenda. Okay. Next. So the news came out about a week ago that Joe Biden launched an airstrike against a Shia militia in Syria. And at least 22 people died. Um, He got backlash for for that from the people, from average Joes and Janes. Uh, Everybody was like, what the hell are you doing? You shouldn't be doing this. This is illegal under U.S. law and international law. You're being a war hawk just like Trump. This isn't why we voted for you. And listen, there was speculation. Aaron Mate made a great point about this. He said he thinks the reason why Biden did it is because Right. he had just released a report that said Saudi Arabia and Mohammed bin Salman, they were responsible for killing Jamal Khashoggi. And this was a sign of like, hey, I know you're mad at me for releasing that report, but I'm still your boy. Here, let me bomb the people who you would want me to bomb. I mean, that's speculation, but it's an educated guess as to what was going on there. So anyway, it was unconscionable. It was terrible. It's evil. It's unconstitutional, illegal. We can go on and on here. Um, but the media felt the need to do more propaganda for Biden in the wake of that bombing and the backlash, look at this. This is really something special here, because it's so transparent. President Joe Biden called off an airstrike against a second target in Syria last week after a woman and children were spotted in the area, a senior administration official told NBC News. Because of the presence of civilians, only one target was bombed in last week's operation, which came in retaliation for recent rocket attacks on U.S. personnel that the Pentagon blamed on Iranian-backed Shia militias in Iraq. The administration official and a defense official said the president made the decision to cancel the separate airstrike after military reconnaissance revealed a woman and two children in the courtyard of the intended target, according to the senior administration official. The Biden administration sent a private message to Iran following the strike, the administration official said. Okay, so think about that. NBC News is just doing stenography for the government. So they spoke to officials in the government, and officials in the government from the Biden administration were like, you guys don't even understand, bro. He's so responsible, he's so reasonable, that he called off an airstrike because he saw a woman and child, and he's like, who, me? I can't have civilian blood on my hands. So I'm going to make sure that we stop this one. And then everybody stood up and clapped and said, Hooray for the humanitarian president! Thank you for not murdering civilians today! is supposed. The media is supposed to be the watchdog of the powerful. Supposed to hold them accountable. Keep them in check. Do adversarial reporting. Instead, like I said, they're doing stenography. What press release would you like for us to do? Uh, you know, by the administration. Well, say that he saved a woman and children. Do that. Okay, we're on it. It's beyond pathetic. And also, it's incredibly transparent. I got a bridge to tell you if you believe this. I do. Because, by the way, the first target, like I said, there was a, a, a UK outlet that was reporting that at least 22 people died in this bombing. Do we know who those 22 people are? No. Is it possible that some of them, or maybe most of them, are civilians? It's possible. Certainly, I mean, listen, if the trends hold true, then that is the case, because Obama had a 90% civilian drone death rate, and then Trump, very similar, and he increased the drone strikes 432%. So, you know, it would, it would be American tradition at this point to willy-nilly bomb targets, and so they're doing some propaganda, I think, to try to get the heat off of him for the first bombing. That's what I think. I think what they're trying to say is, like, they saw the backlash, they sensed the backlash, that people really hated the bombing of Syria. And so they're covering their own ass by saying, no, we see, we're the responsible people. And we don't do indiscriminate murder, we just do regular murder. So, like, clap for me for not killing civilians. I don't even believe you. I think you killed civilians. I don't even believe you. I don't even believe you. So, um, God, they're so sycophantic, the media is. In the same way that Fox News loved Trump and Republicans, MSNBC and NBC and CNN, they just love corporate Democrats, and they will do propaganda like this all day, every day. Where It's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. This article was embarrassing, but expect a lot more of it. It's not going to stop. They don't even point out that it was, like, illegal under U.S. law and international law what we did. They don't even point that out. They don't even point out that, like, They're claiming this was defensive in nature. Defensive in nature? Even if you take their point at face value that, oh, some Shia militias attacked our people in Iraq. I got a good solution for that. Get the fuck out of Iraq. What are we doing in Iraq? What are we still doing there? What are we doing there? You guys said early on, the reason we're there is because we have to kill Saddam Hussein. He's been dead for a long time now. Why are we still there? Why are we there? Oh, we got to be in Afghanistan to kill Osama bin Laden. Mission accomplished. You killed him in Pakistan. Why are we still there? They don't even give you a reason anymore. You're just supposed to assume that it makes sense for us to be there, and then if somebody tries to attack us when we've been occupying a country for 20 years, they're still, by definition, the bad guy, and we're by definition the good guy, even though we shouldn't fucking be there. It's a, they insult our intelligence on a daily basis, and this is what your media does. This is how bad they are. This is how pathetic they are. They didn't think in this, in this article to point out, the fact that we shouldn't be there, we're illegally occupying the country. They didn't even point that out. Oh, yeah, it was defensive for us to do whatever we did. Nonsense. See, that's how you know how biased they are. Is that they never, they never bring up international law when it cuts against us. Ever. Ever. So they're really propagandists. Okay. Okay.
3: Let's continue in this speech.
1: Conservative media is trying really hard to find their footing in the Biden era. They're not exactly sure what direction to go in, um, what arguments to use, and they're a bit of a mess. So here we have um, one of the top conservative hosts, Tucker Carlson. He's going to talk about the war in Afghanistan. Boy, does he make some curious points.
2: The American invasion of Afghanistan began way back in October of 2001 in response, of course, to 9-11. Afghans were sheltering Saudis who committed the terror attacks. They were trained there. The question is, why do we still have troops there almost 20 years later? And the answer is, not for national security reasons, but because our leaders see Afghanistan as a handy place to conduct a kind of social science experiment, the kind that George Soros might fund. Our leaders believe Afghanistan must be bombed in a submission so that its culture changes. Maybe we should bomb them until they accept gender-neutral pronouns. That may be one of the objectives over at the Pentagon. The latest evidence comes from Vox.com. At a recent meeting, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the hopelessly over his head and extremely liberal Mark Milley, got emotional during a meeting about withdrawing from Afghanistan. We can't do this, Millie said. If we leave Afghanistan, women's rights will, quote, go back to the Stone Age. So even at the Biden White House, people asked, well, what does that have to do with our national security objectives? One White House official called Millie's little speech, quote, a lot more emotion than substance and said it wasn't, quote, super logical. But there is a logic to it. And the U.S. government, the Pentagon, and the State Department, both of which have been hoping by the left while we weren't paying attention, they've been implementing these plans around the world, and particularly in Afghanistan. A report last month from the Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction outlined our government's efforts to achieve, quote, gender equality in Afghanistan. Bet you didn't think that was part of the mission, did you? You thought it was defeating terror. No. It was changing the traditional Afghan family structure.
1: This is amazing. You know, hey, points for creativity, but boy, is this a stupid argument. He's saying, you know, the reason we're still in Afghanistan right now is because of the woke left. That's why we're there. I got bad news for you, Tucker. 99% of those on the so-called woke left are anti-war. If you talk to them, they're like, yeah, I don't want to be in Afghanistan. Why would we, why would we, I am I'm against imperialism, and that's imperialism, so let's get out. He said, you heard it, this is, this is a quote, a direct quote. The Pentagon is captured by the left. <laughs> <laughs> ah! What? <laughs> what are you talking about? That's not remotely accurate. The Pentagon is captured by the left. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. That's the most made-up thing I've ever heard. So Let's go through some of his points here. He said, the reason we have troops in Afghanistan is to do a social science experiment the kind that George Soros would like. George Soros has Dickie McGee's acts to do with this, and nobody's nobody's trying to do a social science experiment, dog. I mean, nominally do they say, oh, yeah, I mean, we don't want Muslim extremism to rule Afghanistan, and we want them to be a little more secular and humanitarian. Sure, sure. Do you really believe that's the reason we're there? Because if you do, I have a bridge to sell you. And you have a you have an IQ problem, if you ask me, if you really buy that nonsense. Listen, it doesn't take a genius. It all comes down to the same. It almost always comes down to the same thing. Money. Money. The military-industrial complex. Don't take my word for it. Take General Smedley Butler's word for it. Take Republican President Dwight Eisenhower's words for it. Okay? This isn't my theory. This isn't some new theory. This is the reality. We have jobs tied to the military-industrial complex in every country single state in the union. Every single one. Our welfare in this country is warfare. A lot of people make a lot of money from endless war. It's very profitable, especially for those in the top. And then you have politicians that take money from Honeywell and Boeing and Raytheon and all the different defense contractors, and then they do their bidding and they have the no-bid contracts. Everybody knows the story. That's the reality, Tucker. Are, are you really silly enough to believe that The primary thing driving our troops in Afghanistan and our generals is a social science experiment that George Soros wants. And really, we want Afghanistan to accept gender-neutral pronouns. This country doesn't even accept gender-neutral pronouns yet. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? And then he says, one of the arguments they use, that's why we need to stay there, is, oh, women's rights will go back to the Stone Age. Um, That is one of the things they say. But again, that's the cover story. In the same way that they say, oh, We care about freedom and democracy in the region. That's why they're there. You really believe that that's why? It's absolutely not. Again, it has a lot more, in the case of Iraq, it has a lot more to do with oil. In the case of Afghanistan, it has a lot to do with the trillions of dollars worth of mineral wealth. You know, it has a lot to do with opium. It also has a lot to do with the geopolitical chessboard where we're trying to counter the influence of China and Russia. These are the real reasons, and I think Tucker's smart enough to know that these are the reasons, but he's trying to He's literally trying to blame the woke left for endless war, which is a bait and switch that honestly is kind of legendary. It's kind of legendary. It is astounding he actually tried to make this argument. It's astounding. Um, Now, also, I mean, listen, fact of the matter is there are no good guys, okay? I mean, we partnered with warlords in Afghanistan and Pakistan. And it turns out those warlords, even though they were secular and they were not part of the Taliban, those warlords had child sex slaves. So that country is going to have issues no matter what. There's going to be problems no matter what. If you have warlords and some nominal secular government versus the Taliban, there's no winning there. So I mean, as a matter of principle, we should pull out because it we shouldn't be there anyway. We did a lot of illegal and offensive invasions, and we're illegally occupying countries and we're not making the situation better okay so that's really why we should we should leave, but his misdiagnosis here is purposeful. you know he knows it's not that we're in Afghanistan to do a social science experiment, he knows it has nothing to do with George Soros, he knows it has nothing to do with gender neutral pronouns um, you know he knows that it is a real issue, too, by the way. Like, yeah, you're going to have extreme religiosity and conservatism, regardless, in, in Afghanistan. And I don't want that. I want, them, I want it to be a secular, um, you know, humanitarian place, but that's none of our business, and we need to pull out. But for him to act like, no, this is the real reason, dense on purpose, you know, I think he knows this is nonsense, but he wanted to try to find a way to spin it to blame the, the woke left and the funny thing is his his beloved Trump continued the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. He did he just like Obama, he acted like oh we're going to get out and they didn't get out. Same thing happened under Trump. He acted like we're going to get out and they didn't get out. So is Trump part of this woke left that kept the wars going? I mean, he he was president. He he was the commander in chief. He had the ability to pull out and he didn't. Maybe it's got nothing to do with the woke left. Maybe it has a lot more to do with neoconservatism and the military-industrial complex and natural resources and the new Cold War. That's what I think it is. So I just – it's crazy that he tried to find a way to take this issue for the right and blame it on, like, the woke left. And I just think it's such a weak argument that it's not going to land. Okay, next. Buckle up, because Fox News did a segment on homelessness, and, of course, any Fox News segment on homelessness is going to be unbearable. Take a look.
0: San Francisco's homeless camps are costing taxpayers $16 million, but they house less than 300 people. That means a tent in these so-called safe sleeping villages costs two and a half times the median rent for a one-bedroom apartment in the city. How does that make sense? Our next guest lives in San Francisco and says the city needs to be held accountable for mismanaging the homeless epidemic. Community advocate Richie Greenberg joins us now. Richie, thanks for being here. Uh, this, when you look at the numbers, someone thought they had a good idea and thought they were helping some people, uh, and then it turns into this. How, how, does, how, how do you get $16 million for 210?
4: Well, first of all, thank you for having me this morning. Um, This is no surprise to us. It's indicative of complete and total fiscal financial mismanagement by our city council, that's the board of supervisors, and they vote on allocation of money. Uh, They bow down to these homeless advocates that are out there, homelessness uh, outreach organizations uh, and activists that fight for the money. And uh, in one way, we can look at this as being the new – um, industry, the homelessness industry here, as tech, leave, as tech is leaving, uh, this is replacing it, is, uh, this, this kind of madness. Well, here's some more of the mad li- madness as far as the cost breakdown.
0: As I mentioned, $16 million, $16.1 million, tents. $61,000 per tent per year, $5,000 per tent per month. You're talking about sort of the industry, the homelessness industry and lobby there, how do you get to $5,000 per tent per month? Who's approving that?
4: Well, uh, we have the Board of Supervisors again, and, and they're the ones that decide where the money goes along with the mayor, uh, London Reed. And, but it's a, tent. Um, it's a tent. It's a tent. Wichy.
3: It's I, a tent. I know that.
4: It's a tent, uh, but, you know, they're doing what they can to squeeze in the homeless that come here. And what we're finding out, uh, it, it's really not anything new. Uh, but uh, our mayor is finally waking up to the fact that a large percentage of those who are homeless on the streets here uh, aren't even from San Francisco. And they've come here over the years uh, specifically uh, to take advantage of the uh, liberal um, assistance that is being offered. And so in order to do that, uh, they do something like this is uh, put tents around the city. Uh, I've seen multiple of these uh sites that they so-called safe sleeping sites, and they're more like corrals. They put uh, temporary fencing around an area. They put tarp over the fencing so you can't see in, uh, and during the day, many of those who are homeless uh, loiter, they come around outside into the neighborhoods, into the shopping areas, into the residential areas, uh, and just hang around. Many of them get uh, high or, dr- or, or drugs and pass out, and then they go back into their site, they go back into the tent. Yeah. The logical extent of liberal policies laid before yeah.
0: you in San Francisco. Richie, thank you so much for speaking out. We appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for
1: having me. God, they're such hacks. The logical extent of liberal policies laid out right in front of you. Um, what about universal housing? How about that? You know, that's, that would be my solution. My solution would be to put a roof over everybody's head. You don't need to go crazy. You don't need to, you know, give people luxury or whatever. No, just make sure people have a place to sleep. It's that simple. And a tent does not suffice. And also doing it in the middle of, you know, busy residential areas or busy shopping areas or whatever it might be, industrial areas. I wouldn't do that either. So I think there's a number of ways in which this isn't, an intelligent approach to the situation, but listen, they're just demagogues. Like, that's what that segment was because what are the solutions here? I would say forget tents, universal housing, roof over everybody's head. Um, You know, maybe you do some little communities that are the, the, what are they called? Like the small houses, I forget, micro houses? I I don't know the term, but I've seen shows on them and I think those things are pretty cool. But anyway, um, forget the tents, put a roof over everybody's head, and just understand that they might be talking about spending a lot of money here, but a number of studies have proven that if you put a roof over everybody's head, it actually saves money. So the taxpayers will save money if you just give people a safe place to sleep, because then what happens is less tax money is spent on hospitalizations and jail and prisons and other social services. And the bill adds up, you know, but if you give people a safe place to sleep, um, a roof over their head, then it works out better when you crunch the numbers. Um, So other than putting a roof over everybody's head, forget these tents, put a roof over everybody's head, beyond that, the answer is universal mental health treatment as part of the Medicare for All system. You know, that's the thing that nobody talks about, but they should, because, you know, regular health care, if you will, that should be free and universal for everybody and funded by tax dollars. But at the same time, by the same token, you should have universal, uh, you know, access to psychologists or psychiatrists, mental health experts. Because listen, uh, look at the numbers. It's not me. It's you look at the data and it's been proven that we have a lot of mental illness in this country. We do. And, you know, that needs to be addressed. We can't just Ignore it, which is what we've been doing. Sweep it under the rug and don't give people the professional help that they need. And so, sorry, but you need it. You need universal mental health treatment. So roof over everybody's head, universal mental health treatment. That would actually save the taxpayers' money, but instead they're just demagoguing about how terrible homeless people are. And they bring up this notion. They inject this notion of, like, the homeless industrial complex where a lot of people are making a lot of money from this. Isn't it amazing Fox News, all of a sudden, they care so much about the nickels and the dimes and the millions of dollars being spent when it comes to homeless people. They never say this when it comes to the military industrial complex, where it's not millions being spent, it's billions being spent and wasted, by the way. The F-35, too, which they spent over a trillion dollars on. They never discuss this on Fox News and wag their finger and say, Jesus Christ, this is a real waste of money. Or Wall Street, the Wall Street bailout, the tremendous amount, the billions of dollars wasted on that front. They don't say Dickie McGee's acts about that at all. So the industrial complexes, the military industrial complex, the Wall Street industrial complex, that's not – they don't talk about that or care about that or fearmonger over that, but they do talk about it when it comes to spending some money, millions, not billions, millions on homeless people, which shows you their priorities. So they're just demagogues, and, you know, they don't really think homeless people are people, and they don't really care about solutions. They just want a fearmonger to be like, aren't – you know – liberal places so bad, when really the approach that I think would work is universal housing and universal mental health treatment, and they never bring those up, even though those are the solutions. There's no doubt about it. Newt Gingrich. Oh, hold on. Let me change my colors, baby.
3: Change my colors, baby.
1: Newt Gingrich went on Tucker Carlson's show. Now, the conversation started with the $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill that just passed. Um, that was the genesis of this conversation, the spark of this conversation. Then they took it in a really, really weird direction.
2: I, I got to wonder, though, and I, your analysis makes total sense, and, and you, I mean, you, know, you ran the House, so you know how it works. But I just wonder the motive behind the things that they want. You said they want to get the stuff they, they want up front make total sense. But all the things that they want hurt the country in measurable ways. We're energy independent. They want us not yeah. to be. They, they want to totally destroy our control over the border. They're letting foreign nationals roam the country unimpeded with COVID. Like, why would you want those things?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I just did a tweet this afternoon saying if there's a problem with COVID in Texas, it's not Governor Abbott. It's Biden's illegals. And we, had, we just got to call them. These are Biden's illegals coming in the country, no public health check. I mean even back in the 1880s, we had public health checks oh, yeah. if you came to America. But here's but Tucker, I, I really admire your show. I really think you're remarkably trenchant in your insights. But I just want to offer you a thought. They don't want to protect your America. Yeah. They want to create an alternative America. It's an America... Of, of racial uh, deep inequality in an anti-white and by the way, anti-Asian basis. It's an America in which transgender dominates Christianity and Judaism. It's an America in which they want to actually pass a bill to create a permanent machine, just like California, Chicago, and New York. Uh, and that's not so when you and I talk about, why would they do this for Americans? Because they really want a radically different country and they realize they just grew with Dr. Seuss, they really despise
1: America.
2: Man, that's not democracy as we've defined it at all. And I appreciate right. your analysis.
1: Dumbest conversation you can ever imagine. It all, with these guys, it always comes back to, <laughs> you just hate America, bro. Why do you hate America? Stop hating America. They don't, like, think about how dumb that is. Even when I'm talking to people who are giant ideological enemies, I grant them the the basic position that, unless proven otherwise, they believe the things they're saying, and in their mind, they think their proposals would help improve the country. That's how adults engage in conversation and dialogue. They're so dumb and so in their own right-wing bubble, their far right-wing bubble, that they don't even do that. They just feel, everybody who disagrees with me on the left just hates America, bro. They just hate America. That's what it is. It's obvious. They just hate the country. That's what it is. Is that really a satisfying answer to you? Are you really comfortable with that? But listen, when you're a complete and utter partisan hack, it is because you're not actually interested in a dialogue or a discussion or understanding somebody. You just want to you know, jerk yourself off all day about how morally superior you are and about how the others are just bad people and they want bad things. Uh, So, I mean, it's just, it's so childish. But did you notice something there? They ended up back at the culture war. What did I tell you? What did I tell you? The original conversation was about the Democrats' agenda, what just passed, the $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill. That was the conversation. Then they ended up with, Dr. Seuss, he ended up saying, transgenderism dominates Christianity and Judaism. What are you talking about? So he had nowhere to go. He couldn't discuss the merits of that relief bill, so he went right to, the Democrats are anti-white, they're anti-Asian, transgenderism is dominating religion like Christianity and Judaism, and Dr. Seuss, I mean, look what they're trying to cancel. Dr. Seuss, this is unbelievable. Do you have anything to say about what's actually in that $1.9 trillion bill. You don't. Here, let me enlighten you. $1,400 stimulus checks per person, Uh, $300 a month unemployment, $3,000 per child tax credit, rent assistance, help for small businesses, saving over a million people's pensions, saving pensions for working Americans. Now, listen, the bill's got problems. I think the check should have been $2,000 because they promised $2,000. I think the $15 minimum wage had to be in there because they ran on $15 minimum wage being in there and they promised they'd get it. They didn't get it in there. There's stuff to criticize. But the criticisms are from the left. Not, he literally can't even discuss the topic at hand and he reverts back to, my opponents hate America and let me tell you more about Dr. Seuss and transgenderism. Guys, they have nothing. The far right has nothing. They have nothing that appeals to regular people, and so they have to talk about the culture war, because that's the only battleground where they feel like they have a point. Isn't that something? I think that's astounding. And by the way, even the so-called populist right Republicans are total frauds, complete fakes. Josh Hawley didn't support a $15 minimum wage. No Republicans supported the $15 minimum wage. Eight Democrats defected, and fucking shame on them, but there were zero Republicans looking out for working Americans. None of them. This bill cut child poverty in half. No Republicans supported it. None. They can't discuss the merits, so they just pivot to the culture war. And Tucker with his fucking fake populism, where's that all of a sudden now? Now all he's got is Dr. Seuss and transgenderism, and, oh, Democrats must hate America or whatever the fuck, because they're totally empty. They're banal, they're stale, they say nothing interesting, and they're just parroting their goofy culture war talking points If you enjoy this, I don't even know what to say to you. All right. Let's talk about the universal basic income study. This is actually really interesting. We have some results from a universal basic income study that was just happening. I think it's in Stockton, California. Take a look at this. California program giving $500, no strings attached, stipends, pays off study fines. So I think the most important finding and the most interesting finding is this. The opponents of universal basic income argue, hey, if you just give people money, you take away their incentive to work. They don't want to work, so they're just going to stay home and be lazy. Because you're giving them money to do nothing, so why wouldn't they stay home and be lazy? Fascinating finding that the exact opposite happened. In other words, people who were getting the money were more likely to become employed than people who weren't. And it was pretty significant, too. The numbers were pretty overwhelming that what actually happened was having that extra money gave people the freedom to have a little bit of a cushion where they could look for meaningful employment. And so there was no increase in laziness. It was the opposite. The people who got the money were more likely to go get a job and work. And again, the numbers weren't even that close on that front. Now, beyond that, another argument that's made by people who oppose universal basic income is effectively you can't trust people. You're going to give them the money, and then they're going to go spend it on lottery tickets and gambling and bullshit, and that's not okay. Again, the exact opposite happened. So I believe the biggest thing that money was spent on was food was food and then the other thing right behind that was like you know rent utilities things of that nature basically all the money was spent on necessities. so it turns out that when you have a universal basic income program it acts like social security for all In the same way we have social security for old people you know, hey, you're old, it's not as easy to work, you might have health problems or whatever. You get health care and you get a payment. And that drastic, Social Security drastically cut poverty among older people in this country. The numbers are astounding. It was an insane success. It really was Social Security. This is effectively Social Security for all. And the results are, when you give people that little cushion, you know what it acts as? A little cushion. It helps people. That's it. That's all that happens. You give people some money, it helps them. Helps them pay the bills, helps them afford food, helps them find a job. And there's literally no downside to this. And by the way, you know, we were waiting on the results of the study, and the study is overwhelmingly pro-UBI. But, like, also, we didn't really need the results of the study because Alaska, for example, people who live in Alaska, residents of Alaska, they've been getting UBI for an extended period of time. There's no, like, you know, mass unemployment crisis or whatever the fuck. No, it doesn't exist doesn't exist. So there's no reason not to do it. I told you guys UBI has moved up my list of policies I prefer specifically when coronavirus hit because my thought was Jesus all these people are getting laid off. you got all these problems and um, what's the easiest most direct way to help people? Cut them a direct check. Cut them a direct check that's it. It's not rocket science. It's not rocket science and so anyway, it's good to see that the data and the research is aligning with, what seems intuitively correct and what seems like common sense. So credit to uh, Mayor Tubbs, I think that's his name, who was instrumental in bringing this about, and I hope more places around the country do it, and I hope eventually we get a national UBI in this country. I do. I hope we get effectively Social Security for All, because there are only upsides, and now that's proven. Okay, I'm going to do one more for y'all.
3: I'm going to do one more for y'all.
1: So I just stumbled across this new Twitter account called Christian Nightmares, and it's kind of hilarious. Um, It's sort of like Right Wing Watch, you know how Right Wing Watch finds... Insane things the far right says, and, but oftentimes it's what fundamentalist Christians say or televangelists say. Um, well, apparently, Pastor Robert Jeffers, who was one of Trump's favorite pastors, he was on the Jim Baker show. This guy's like literally a proven con artist. And they started talking about heaven. And boy, did this conversation get weird. Look at Pastor Jeffers' conception of what heaven is like.
0: in heaven. Now, that may even sound more like hell to some people, you know, working in heaven. But remember, God created us to be workers. Work was a gift from God before the fall of Adam and Eve. God meant for us to find fulfillment in our work. He's a worker. He created us to be workers. But in heaven, the new heaven and the new earth, all of the things that drain the joy out of our work, bodies that grow tired strained relationships, government regulations, all those things will be removed, and we're going to enjoy work like God intended us to enjoy. We're also going to work in heaven. Now that may even sound more
1: like hell. Sorry, it it repeated there. Is it just me, or did he make heaven sound like slave labor? Like a concentration camp? going to be great, bro. You're going to die. You're going to go to heaven and you're going to work. And all the things that make the work negative, we're going to get rid of those things, but you're going to work. Don't you want to work? Isn't it going to be great when you work? What if you don't want to work? Do they make you work anyway? Because God, God created you and that's in your nature, so you got to work. Right. So you would be forcing somebody to work, which forced labor. I think we have a word for that. Slavery. Isn't that what that is? I think that's slavery. That's his conception of heaven. That's his conception of heaven. And then I love the part where he said, um, all the things about work that we don't like, like our bodies growing tired and our strained relationships and government regulations, we're just going to get rid of those things. Oh, my God. He thinks that, like, anarcho-capitalism is heaven. Just get rid of the government regulations, bro, and then we'll work. It'll be wonderful. Yeah, that's anarcho-capitalism. By the way, historically, that's a disaster. Look at the Industrial Revolution in this country, the lack of regulations. You have child labor, all these terrible things, people working insane hours. And But it's okay because they're going to make sure that even though you work endlessly, your body never grows tired. Again, this sounds like a nightmare. This doesn't sound like heaven. This sounds more like hell. What are you talking about, bro? What are you talking about? I will say this, it's a decent point to say, hey, work is a gift if if you get fulfillment out of your work. But here's the problem, Pastor Robert Jeffers, most people do not get fulfillment out of their work. Most people are doing a job that they're not crazy about, that they're not in love with, that they don't wake up excited to do. They're just trying to pay the frickin' bills. So, oh God, his conception is so bad. You would think that these guys would have a better... Um, a better argument they could make to try to get people on their side, right? You would think that heaven's more like, you know, a beach in Miami on a beautiful sunny day, 75 degrees out, little breeze hitting you, sipping a mojito, laying next to somebody that, your significant other who you love deeply, you know, or with your kids or whatever, like, Something, something that makes people go, hmm, let me look into the Christianity thing. Instead, he's actively doing my work for me. He's doing, like, the work of secular humanists and atheists and agnostics. He's doing our work for us. Yeah, that sounds great, man. Let me join you in heaven where we do forced labor and my body never grows tired and we get rid of the government regulations. So if, I, if there's somebody who's young who dies, do they also have to do that? Do they also have to do forced labor in heaven? Who hears this and says, Bad guy nailed it. I can't wait to die and never stop working. That sounds lovely, doesn't it? Anyway, um, they really lost their touch. There was a time in this country where the fundamentalist Christians, the televangelists, a lot of their beliefs were sort of widespread and, you know, the majority opinion in this country. Now we're so far away from that on virtually every issue. Recreational marijuana, LGBTQ rights, I mean, you name it. Like, they're losing the battle. And they're losing the battle because guys like this are their head spokespeople, where they tell you heaven is something that you literally would never want to do ever. Okay. All right, baby. We are done with today's show. I love all 'all. y'all. I'll talk to you soon. Everybody have a great rest of your day. Peace.